The book of Mark chronicles the last three years of Jesus here on earth. They were pretty intense years, to say the least. Since meeting John the Baptist, he was faced with temptations in the desert, performed miracles, healed people, gained followers, was transfigured and died a criminal's death, only to be raised from the dead. Why should all this matter to you and me? Join us for the last three. Well, church, how's everyone doing tonight? That was good. We used to be a two-time church. Now we're a one-time church. Thank you for that. The joke, for those of you just joining in the past couple months, was that sometimes when I would ask the church, how are you doing? It'd be like this. So then I'd always say we're a two-time church, and then we, let's try to get, let's see what the two-time is like now. Church, how are you doing this evening? There we go. That's the energy that we need. I like that. I need that energy because I have been off for the past two Sundays. I took a week off, spent some time, had a staycation, spent time with the family, and it was great. Take a little break to refresh. And every single time I take time off and I'm, I'm not preaching and I'm not preparing, I'm so excited to get back. And this series that we launched last Sunday called Last Three, I'm, I'm really, really pumped to see what God does in my life and in the life of our church from now all the way till Easter, we're going to be going through the book of Mark for the next several months together to look at the life of Jesus. There's nothing more important, there's nothing more valuable that we can do with our time than look at Jesus' life. And so we're going to be spending our time in the book of Mark, and this evening we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. And so if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there. Also, if you downloaded our app, you can click on the notes section and you can follow along. There's a whole bunch of extra notes as well, including the passages for this evening. Highly recommend for you to do that, to stay with us and to engage tonight. But also, if you go back later in the week, uh, the notes are really helpful as you study and as you dive into God's word on your own in personal worship. Well, before I jump into a few verses here in Mark chapter 1, I want to celebrate one more time something we, re re we revealed last week, and many of you were out of town, and some of you I know were joining online, as I know many are this evening, but I just want to say it one more time because it's a huge celebration in the life of our church. If you have, have you have been with us in December, you know that we announced that in September of last year, we had already met the pro projected budget for the year. The last year's generosity as a church was the highest it's ever been in the history of this church. And so we were able to repurpose our December tithes and offerings to build up a reserve fund to go towards a permanent location. We are asking God to make available, make known to us a place that we can call our own every day of the week, all hours of the day to do ministry on Sunday and every other day throughout the week for this community here in Brickell and the surrounding areas. And so we set a very big goal, which was $100,000, and this was much higher than we've ever received in the history of the church, actually almost double what we've ever received in a given month. In fact, I was recalling this past week that in 2016, when God called uh, me and my wife here, and we were kind of engaging in this revitalization project here at Crossbridge Brickell, our annual budget, the budget for the entire year, was $90,000. That was all 12 months, $90,000. And last month, we celebrated $106,000 that came in in one month for the building fund. So can we give God some praise? 
Amazing. Still blows me to wait to see what God has done in and through you all in this community, in this church, for this city. So many things to celebrate. And I want us all to move into 2022, regardless of what last year brought, regardless of what the past few weeks have been. Let's move forward with hope and excitement to see what God is going to do in your life, in the life of this church, and in this city. Amen? Amen. So let's read together from Mark chapter 1, a few verses, starting in verse 9. Through verse 13. We left off last week in verse 8, so we're just reading a few more verses together, which is the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. Here's what God's word says to us In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, one of the most powerful things in the world is empathy, the ability to identify with another. It is incredibly powerful to walk alongside of someone, to speak into someone's life, to listen to someone, and to be able to relate, to be able to understand, to listen, and to ask questions to where you feel connected to their experience. It is incredibly powerful. In fact, one of the key steps in healing from trauma is to connect with other people that have faced similar struggles to hear from their experiences and their stories because the ability to identify with another person is incredibly powerful. Those words, I understand, I feel you, I can relate. You see, oftentimes, even when we're in a place where we need a cure for something, when we receive care, it's of greater healing for us than even whatever that cure is that we need. Or even the care opens up a pathway for us to find a cure. Empathy is incredibly powerful. It's not only powerful for healing, but it's also powerful for things like laughter. The greatest comedians learn how to tell jokes and stories to where you identify with them. Even if you've never had the exact experience, you feel as if you understand or they say something you've thought. All the great comedians do this. One of my favorite comedians is Jim Gaffigan. Any Jim Gaffigan fans in the room? Oh, he's great. He tells this one joke that I so relate with. He talks about Waffle House. He says, Waffle House just looks from the outside like an ominous place. Even the sign, he says, looks like a ransom note. Because it's like kind of cut out letters. It kind of looks like it's been pieced together. One letter is always out. Then he asked this one question. And this, this threw me through a loop this week. He said, have you ever seen a Waffle House during the day? I thought to myself, I've never seen a Waffle House during the day. I can't remember one. I've certainly never been to one during the day. That's 12 a.m., 2 a.m., that's like the place. Whenever you're hungry in the middle of the night and you're like, I want to eat something, all of a sudden there's a Waffle House. It just happens like that. It's as if they go underground during the day and they come out at night. I don't even know where a Waffle House is in Miami, but I know they're here. They're somewhere, but I can only find them at night. It's unbelievable. 
Some of you are sitting there, you're like, you're not going to hear anything else I say because you're going to be thinking, have I ever seen a Waffle House during the day? What does it even look like? But see, when you can identify with someone and, and say something that somebody thought or, or connect with someone in a way that builds empathy and understanding, it's incredibly powerful. And here, in just a few verses, we see this with Jesus. In the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus, he is identifying with us. So let's go back to a, a few verses that we read in the very beginning, 9 through 11. It says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven declaring, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Let's look more closely at this section where Jesus is baptized. First off, Jesus' baptism is his inauguration into public ministry. So up to this point, Jesus is known by those in Nazareth, by his parents and friends and, and a few others, but he's not publicly revealed himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah. His baptism is a revelation to everyone that is there by the Jordan with John the Baptist that the Savior, the Son of God, has arrived. You see, John the Baptist has been doing something for a period of time now. He is Jesus' cousin, and he was given a calling to prepare the way to make straight the paths for the Messiah, the Savior. And he has been baptizing people outside of the city in the Jordan River. And his baptism was a preparatory baptism, meaning he's inviting people to make their hearts ready to prepare their lives to make straight the paths in their life and in this city, in this region, for the Messiah who is coming. And now, Jesus has arrived. He is there, and he is baptized, revealing to everyone, the Son of God, that John the Baptist has been preparing people for, has come. His ministry has begun as we will see in the book of Mark, and will take place over the next three years, the last three years of his life. And he is there in the waters, baptized the very same way that many, many, many people have been baptized before him. They had been preparing themselves for Jesus to come, and now Jesus is, is as a sort, symbolically readying himself for the last three years of his public ministry, the last three years, in fact, of his life. Now, there are two key reasons that we see in this passage, and another passage we're going to jump to that gives us some more detail. There's two key reasons why Jesus was baptized and why he was tempted. The first reason why Jesus was baptized in particular is because it is a sign and it is a symbol of newness. Now, Christian baptism, as we do several times throughout the year, some of you have been baptized here at Crossbridge or you've been baptized previously. One of the, the, the statements or the passages that we always quote at baptism is that if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. There's new life now available. And it's symbolic of newness. It is a sign and a seal of new life within you. 
And the water element of baptism is very important because water is a cleansing agent. It symbolizes new life. Water is a cleansing agent. You use it to wash your hands, to wash your body. Water is pure. Now, you may say it's only pure at my house if I have a Brita or if I have a filter. But in its natural state, it is pure. And it is necessary for life. Everything in the world that is living needs water to survive. It brings about life. It sustains life. It's pure and it's cleansing. And so when we are baptized, it is a sign and a seal of newness within us. It is a sign and a seal of our life united to Christ, who also, as we see here, was baptized. In fact, when we baptize people at Crossbridge, we say these words over people, buried with Christ, as people are placed under the waters, risen with Christ. It's symbolic of the cleansing of your sin as you've been buried with Christ, but now you are risen pure in Christ. And now Christ is your life. He is the very thing that gives you life and sustains you. It's symbolic of newness. You see, baptism is an outward sign of what is internally and eternally true of everyone who surrenders in faith to Jesus. This is what it symbolizes. This is what is a sign of and a seal of this new life within you. And Jesus here, when he is baptized, he is also revealing something. You see, your baptism reveals the truth of who you are in Christ. You are forgiven. You are pure. You are now sustained for not only this earthly life, but eternal life through faith in Christ. It is an outward sign revealing that truth to you and everyone else who witnesses your baptism. And Jesus here in his baptism is also revealing something true. That newness is available. That new life has come. You see, the project of redemption is now underway over the next three years of Jesus' life, culminating in the cross and his burial and the resurrection. Jesus is making all things new, which is his great promise in the very end of Scripture, that he is going to make all things new. And it's an invitation into this new life in Christ. He's revealing this here in his baptism. It's symbolic to everyone that is there, to those of us that are reading it, that new life is available. He's revealing this truth in his baptism. It's the first reason that he's baptized. And the second reason why he's baptized and tempted, and this is where we're going to really land tonight, is to identify with you. It is to identify with you. Now, here's a really important question. Was it necessary for Jesus to be baptized? No. Because Jesus is not being baptized as some sign or some seal of the forgiveness of his sins. He is the forgiver of sins. He's not baptized to communicate some new life within him. No, Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. He's not, not, he's not now in this moment just becoming the Messiah. He has always been the Messiah. If you were with us on Christmas Eve or if you went to church on Christmas Eve, you most likely sang the song Silent Night. And in that song, there's a, a line that says, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. You see, Jesus 
has always been Messiah. Now he's simply revealing himself to the world as Messiah. So baptism was not necessary for Jesus to reveal his ministry. So why was he baptized? You see, he's baptized to identify with us. To identify with us in our journey of faith. Look at this. Jesus identifies with you at the very beginning of your new life in Christ and all the way till the end. You see, here's how it works for us. For those of you here that have come to faith in Christ, you have been wandering in your life, whether you came to Christ a few months ago, years ago, decades ago, you were wandering, searching for answers and satisfaction, trying to discover meaning in life, and you came to the place where you realize Jesus is the one who will cleanse you of your sins, who makes you pure in him, who gives you new life both now and eternally, and you give your life to Jesus. You surrender to him. And then you are baptized. And when you're baptized, it is an outward sign and symbol of that new life that, it was, is, that is within you. And then that you now begin this new life in Christ as you journey in faith. And he's symbolizing and he's identifying with you in that very beginning. That he was baptized in the waters just as you had the water poured over you or as you were submerged within the water. He's identifying with you in the very beginning. It was not necessary for him to be baptized to reveal his public ministry, but he wants to reveal this new ministry that he is about to bring for the last three years of his life through baptism so that you understand that he identifies with you in the beginning of your journey of new life. And you see that very clearly in what happens next. So he's identifying with you at the beginning of your journey of faith and all the way through the end. Because we read this detail that should jump out of the page to you because it's kind of peculiar. It's not necessarily what you would expect. It says that after he's baptized, verse 12 and 13, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now there's three really important details here in this section that helps you to understand how Jesus identifies with you at the beginning of your journey of faith and all the way to the end. Here it says that after Jesus is baptized, this is the big revealing of his public ministry, he now is driven by the Holy Spirit alone out from the crowd, away from people, into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, as we talked about last week, the wilderness is not like a lush forest where Jesus can make a cabin and a fire and hang out for 40 days and 40 nights. The wilderness is a desert. It is a place of suffering and hardship. It is not a place conducive to life. He has just revealed the new life that is coming through him, and now he goes to a place that is not conducive for life. And there in the wilderness he is tempted. He is driven there and tempted by Satan. Why? Remember, he's looking to identify with you. New life brings new temptations. You see, one of the things that I, is true every single time, and whenever someone comes to faith, I walk with them and I talk with them through this. I say, listen, this new life that is yours in Christ is going to bring new temptations. 
Temptation follows transformation every single time. Some of you can, re- can relate with that. You could say, I-, I remember when I came to Christ, and all of a sudden I was tempted by things I was never tempted by before because I didn't see them as wrong. I didn't try to avoid those things. I didn't try to say no or restrict myself from those things. And so now this new life in me has brought about new temptations. Well, Jesus here, as he reveals the new life that is made available in him, he immediately goes to face new temptations. He is out in the wilderness tempted. The second detail, and this is... So crucial to see in the life of Christ. As this new life is revealed and he's driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted, he shows us the power of no. The power of no. Now, here in this passage, Mark doesn't kind of expound upon this, but Matthew does. Matthew in Matthew chapter 4 speaks about the temptation of Jesus. He, he, he shares the same thing that Jesus was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness. He was there 40 days and 40 nights. He's fasting and he's praying and he's tempted by Satan. And as he's out there tempted by the devil, he experiences three very relatable temptations. Here's the first temptation that happens Jesus is hungry, he's not eating. The devil comes to him and says, why don't you command those stones to be turned into bread? You're the son of God. Command those stones to be turned into bread so you can eat. He's tempting Jesus to abuse his power for comfort. It's a test of comfort. Jesus replies, no. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil takes Jesus on top of this great building, this temple, and he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off this building and and the angels will come and minister to you. They will save you. He's giving him a test of pride. If you're the son of God, prove it. Why don't you show it? Test his pride. And Jesus says, no, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the last temptation, he says to Jesus as he brings him up onto this mountain where he essentially looks over all of the kingdoms and wealth and opportunities that the world has to offer. And the devil says to Jesus, this can all be yours. All the wealth, all the prestige, all the honor, all the glory, all the influence. If you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, No, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, he's tempted in these three ways, a test of comfort, a test of pride, and a test of allegiance. Who will you serve? Who will you worship? Are these not very relatable temptations? These are things that we are tempted by as people all the time, tempted by comfort, Tempted to believe that the new life that is true of us, the new life that is in us, that is internally and eternally true that we're called to walk in through faith in Christ, that this new life that's going to have new temptations and new sacrifices maybe isn't as good as the old life. 
Does it not feel at times like you've come out of the wilderness, you've come to experience faith in Christ, you've been transformed, you've been regenerated, you have this new life, and you keep running back to the wilderness? You keep being pulled to go into reverse. The old is gone, the new has come, but the old keeps asking you to go back. And one of the ways that you're being tempted to do that is to choose comfort to abuse your power, to abuse the freedom that you have in Christ, to go back and choose comfort, to eat of the desires of your flesh instead of eat from the word of God, to choose comfort over Christ, a temptation we all have in different ways and often. The second one is a temptation of pride. How many times are you tempted to prove yourself, prove yourself capable, prove yourself successful, prove yourself worthy and valuable, Especially when people doubt you. It's one of the things you always see from athletes. They talk about, how are you able to make it? It's because of the haters, you know. I had to prove myself. I had to prove them wrong. And sometimes I'll call out like a teacher. Like Miss Anderson, fourth grade, you see? See where I am now? Proving themselves. But we're so easily tempted by the pride to prove that we are something valuable, to prove that we are capable and successful, forgetting who we are in Christ, forgetting our identity in Christ, the confidence we have in Christ, the security that we have in Christ. We don't need to prove ourselves to anyone, and yet we're constantly tempted to compromise and to forget about Christ and to prove ourselves to other people. And maybe one that is prevalent every single day for us is a test of allegiance. Who will you serve? Who do you view as the most valuable? Who or what do you treat as deserving of your worship? Tempted by power and by wealth and by personal prestige, by acclamation and influence, we are tempted by this all the time. I feel like it kind of goes like this for many of us. We think about our lives, and in our mind, we look over the future of our lives as if we're on top of that mountain that Jesus was, and we're surveying what could be possible for us, what fortune we could create, what fame we could have, what pleasure we could experience. And it's as if in those moments, as we're thinking about our future and what, what is before us, we're being tempted by the devil himself to forsake the wisdom of God and the truth of God and surrender to the wisdom of the world and to give our allegiance to that because we believe that will be better for us than what God has promised and offers. We are tempted by the very same things that Jesus was tempted by. Why is Jesus driven immediately to the wilderness, to be tempted after he's baptized, revealing the new life that is made available and is to come. Because he's identifying with us. Just like what happens in our life at the very beginning as we enter this new life, excited and full of joy, we get dragged back so quickly right back to that old wilderness where we are tempted, we're facing hardship and suffering, and we feel like all of these pressures and people and things in our life are trying to squeeze the very life out of us. A test of comfort and pride and allegiance. You see, when you go through whatever temptation you may be facing this week, this year, Jesus understands because he was tempted as you are. Hebrews 4 tells us that. 
that he was tempted in every way as we are, and that's why he can empathize with us. He can identify with us. And see, even though Jesus was tempted, he reveals not only that he understands, but he teaches us something too, which is the power of no. The power of saying no. Every single time Jesus is tempted, what does he immediately say? No. He immediately says no. Now, I believe that we live in a culture, and many of us are people, that struggle with saying no. We struggle to say no. We are yes people. Try to say yes to opportunities and people and places and events and invitations and compromises. We are yes people. Now, yes can be a beautiful thing. It can be a powerful thing to say yes to Jesus, yes to generosity, to courage, to say yes to sacrificial love. But sometimes we say yes because we struggle to say no. Because we function out of insecurity, because we're afraid of what people may think, because we think that being agreeable will make more people like us, because we don't want to rock the boat. We struggle to say no. And that may be different for each of us. For some of us, it's because we don't want to be spoken against, because everyone else is doing this, and if I say no, then someone's going to judge me or they're going to think something negatively of me. Some of us say yes because we have maybe convinced ourselves or heard that like, saying yes to everything is like the Christian thing to do because no is kind of mean. So you got to say yes. Some of us say no or say yes because we're trying to prove ourselves to other people, but just taking every opportunity. Here's one of the ways that we know that it's a real struggle in our culture and in our community. How many times have you been invited to an event and you were overbooked, overwhelmed, you didn't really want to go, you just needed a night to yourself, and everything in you just wanted to simply say no. But you had to say like, well, no, but let me explain to you why, let me give you like a whole manifesto for why I can't make that event, or maybe, or like you just like ghost them completely and don't respond because you don't want to say no. So many of us struggle to say no. We have to justify our no because we want to please people. We want to be agreeable. We don't want people to think badly of us. No is kind of mean. And here's why I say this. Because the need to justify every single no in your life carries into other areas of your life. Think about the times that you have fallen to a temptation of comfort or pride or allegiance. Is it not because you did not immediately say no? Because you struggle to say no. So you said maybe, or you said yes, thinking you're strong enough to say no later, or you just waited too long. You know, you just didn't say no immediately, just kind of didn't do anything, and all of a sudden you fell into it. You don't put up boundaries, you, don't, you struggle to say no, you justify everything, and so you struggle to say no to temptations because you just say yes to everything, or you say maybe, or you justify. See, what Jesus shows us here is the power of no. He says no immediately. He's not like, well, tell me a little bit more, Satan. Let me think about it. Let me understand. What do you mean by, you know, wealth? What kind of wealth are we talking about here? He says no immediately. There is power in saying no. It's an important detail to see in this story and to learn from Jesus. And the third one is this. The first detail is that he empathizes with us. He is tempted just as we are. He understands what it's like for us to struggle in this journey of faith, that we're trying to live this new life where we're constantly called back to the wilderness, tempted. 
He shows us the power of no. And lastly, that the word of God is a sword and a support. When Jesus says no, he doesn't say no alone. Every time he says no, he couples it with scripture. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He says no, and then he couples it with scripture. Why? Because scripture, the word of God, is a, the sword that you are to use in the battle against lies and temptations. Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul says that you are to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. How do you fight temptation? How do you battle against lies? The word of God. So oftentimes you'll hear us talk about this here and and every church that is a gospel-centered church and a a biblically solid church is going to say this every single time, that it is not optional for you to spend time in God's word, that you should be reading God's word. Why? Because it's the sword of the spirit. You see, it's not optional to read your Bible every day. Scripture memorization is vital because when you are not reading God's word, when you are not seeking to memorize it, you are going into battle each and every day without a weapon. And then you're, you're feeling, I keep getting cut down. I keep saying no. I keep falling over and over again. Yeah, you're fighting with no weapon. You need the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So you can say no without justifying it. You can say no immediately because God's word is in your head. It is buried within your heart and it is showing you what is true and what gives you life and what will actually satisfy you. The sword of the spirit. Jesus reveals to us how we say no with God's word and the power of scripture. But he also reveals to us this, that the word of God is your support. It is the support of your life. You see, Jesus back in verse 11 hears something from God the Father that is declared over him that will be the support of his public ministry for the next three years. Every trial, every temptation, every hardship that he will go through is because of these words that are his support. They give him confidence and courage that will bring him to say yes to the cross and display sacrificial love. And that's this. Verse 11, when Jesus is baptized, it says this. A voice came from heaven. It says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Listen, remember what I said at the very beginning. The baptism of Jesus is his inauguration into public ministry. In everyone's eyes, that's there and anyone in any city except for a few friends and family members in Nazareth. Nobody really knows about Jesus. He hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't performed any miracles. He hasn't spoken openly and confidently about the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. He has not declared publicly that he is the Messiah come to save. He hasn't done anything yet in people's eyes. And yet here, when he is baptized, a voice comes from heaven as God the Father declares over him, this is my beloved son, and in him I am well pleased. Hasn't done anything. And yet he's the beloved son. God the Father is pleased in him. You see, 
as Jesus will move forward and face many temptations and say no immediately with Scripture, as he will perform miracles and declare the kingdom of God, as he will go to the cross and give his life for you and for me and rise victorious from the grave after three days. God the Father will never love him more or less than at this moment right here. Because God the Father, Son, and Spirit exist in perfect love. Their love has been perfect and has always been. It never grows. It never shrinks. It always is. Here's why this is so important. One of the things that I do with my sons every single day is I try to tell them that I love them and I'm proud of them. Every day. All the time. And for them, it's like it doesn't, they maybe don't even know why. Why well, I didn't do anything. Why are you proud of me? Just saying I love you all the time. I'm telling them that I'm proud of them all the time, every single day. Why do I do that? Because I want them to know that I love them no matter who they become or what they go through or what they face. That I'm proud of them no matter what becomes of their life what they achieve or what they struggle with, that I just love them and I'm proud of them. I'm not going to love them more or love them less or be more or less proud of them no matter what happens in the rest of their life. I want them to know that. Even though for them, they feel like, what did I do? I didn't do anything. I just woke up. You said, you're proud of me. I want them to know that. You see, Jesus here, as he's baptized, he hears the love of God declared over him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It is the support of Jesus' ministry. As he knows, as, as he is on earth, as he engages in these last three years of his life, that God the Father and the Spirit, they exist in perfect love. It will not shrink. It will not grow. And no matter what Jesus does, even as he gets to the cross, he is well pleased in the Father's eyes. You see, remember I told you that Jesus is looking to identify with you. He identifies with you in your new life, beginning of your journey of faith. He identifies with you through every temptation. He identifies when you struggle and actually gives you wisdom of how to say no immediately with Scripture. He identifies with you as you use the sword of the Spirit to combat lies and temptations. And he identifies with you with the Father's love declared over him as the support of his life. You see, in your earthly existence, the support of your life is to be God's love declared over you. The Apostle Paul says this, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. Meaning, you can do nothing for God to love you more or love you less. You can do nothing for God to be more proud of you or less proud of you. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And so often we function the very opposite way, We're trying to prove to God. It's like a test of pride, but for God. God, I'm going to try to prove to you that you should love me. I'm going to try to prove to you that you can be proud of me. No, God declares over you that he loves you. And there's nothing that you or anyone else can do to separate you from God's perfect love he has for you in Christ. Nothing. You see, when I tell my sons that I am proud of them and I love them every day, it is because here's what I want them to think when they get older. I want them to know that I love them no matter 
no matter what they do, no matter whether or not they become the version of themselves they think I want them to become. You see, when God the Father tells you that he loves you, that he is pleased with you, because you are in Christ, it is not because you are becoming the version of yourself you think God wants you to be. Did you hear that? God loves you not because you are becoming the version of yourself that you believe God wants you to be. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he's pleased in you because you're in Christ. Not because you said no to all those temptations last week. Not because you've gotten so much better over the last year and you're reading your Bible so much more. No, he just loves you. Where you are right now and his love for you in Christ will not grow and it will not shrink no matter what becomes of your life. See, that is to be your support. That gives you confidence. That gives you courage to move forward in that new life that is made available to you. The Father declares that kind of love over you today. I don't, I don't care how your last weekend was or your last year. God's love for you in Christ is perfect today. You are pure. You are holy. You have new life. And you're invited to walk in it. You see, that should move you to say, Jesus, I want to learn from your example. I, I want to take the sword of the Spirit to combat temptations. I want to learn the power of no. I want to go to you when I struggle because I know that you identify with me. See, God's care for you is your cure. I, I want you to hear that this year. That you do not need to cure yourself or fix yourself or try to better yourself so that God will love you more and God will be pleased. And you know, God just cares for you and he loves you and he's pleased with you because you are in Christ. And that will be your cure. That, when we talk about being gospel-centered, that's what it means. At the very center of your core, the very thing that supports you is that God loves me, not because I'm becoming the version of myself that I believe that God wants me to be, but because I am in Christ. He loves me. He's pleased in me. And every single morning when I wake up, God is declaring over me, I love you and I'm proud of you. You need to tell yourself that, friends, every morning. God, I know you love me and you're proud of me. And I'm going to walk in that today. That's going to be my support. Will you pray with me?